if God may be leading you somewhere and you want to talk about it, then talk to someone after the service this evening. Uh, the Middle East is only part of God's great world. But if God may be leading you there, then don't let this weekend pass without speaking to my wife, myself, or some of my colleagues who will be at the little stand. Now, my wife you'll find next to the tripwire just by uh, the little stand. Because if you're young and good-looking, she'll want to shove a magazine into your hand and say, here we are, pray for us, take an interest. So watch out for her and watch out for the tripwire. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Please help me now to teach it accurately and winsomely. And give us all listening ears and obedient wills. For Jesus' sake. Amen. We're in the 7th, maybe 8th century B.C., and uh, the situation in what we call today Israel-Palestine, as the Arabs prefer to call it, it was very similar to some parts of the West today. There were economic problems. These largely resulted from a social and a spiritual disintegration. Uh, family life had suffered. Uh, church life was negligible. Few seemed to pray and care about God. And it seemed that the nation was spiraling downhill and no one had the answer this moral slide, this economic decline, who could help us? Parliament had no answer. The king was puzzled. Those who were the national church leaders seemed to have nothing to say. They turned to academia, but the wise men had nothing to say. They looked beyond their limited borders. Egypt was a fading power on the international stage, but they went down there and they spoke to these fellows and said, look, can you help us? Have you found the answers to the problems of life? No one had the answer. They saw that out there in the east, there was a growing power, the power of Babylon, emerging on the world stage. And so they sent their wise men to them and said, look, can you help us? But no one seemed to have the answer. And all the time, God is looking on. And one day he said to his specially gifted prophet Isaiah, a man for the times, he said, I want you to have a prophetic uh, message for the people and like many of the prophecies in the Old Testament they were acted out as was this now he said to Isaiah you will act this out alone one actor, one major play but you'll do all the parts it's a law court scene and you will first take the part of the judge and the judge will declare the case then you will take the part of the uh, witnesses and you will speak the words of the witnesses, I will put you in your mouth, and then you will step back and you will take the part of the judge. It's fascinating stuff, and it happens in the earlier bits. For example, in chapter 41 and verse 21, he takes the case of the, the judge, the judge of all the earth, and he says, come on then, present your case, says the Lord. Set forth your argument, says Jacob's king. Bring in your idols to tell us what's going to happen. Tell us what the former things were, so that we may consider them and know their final outcome. Or declare to us the things to come and tell us what the future holds. And then having played that part, it seems that he, he plays the part of all the, the world religions, the ideologies, the philosophies. And uh, he then comes over in our Bibles to what we call verse 28 of chapter 41. And then he takes the part of God again. And I imagine the atmosphere was electric. 
he has explained that no one has the answer to the root problems of life. No one can put Humpty Dumpty together again. And he steps back onto, I'm sure it was a raised dais. And I like to imagine with true thespian flair, he throws out his left hand and he says, I look, and these are the words of God, the judge of all the earth. There is no one, no one among them to give counsel. No one to give answers when I ask them. See, they are all false. Their deeds amount to nothing. Their images are but wind and confusion. Now, it's important to know that God is not saying that there's no place for parliament. There's no place for education. There's no place for learning. But what he's saying is that when it comes to the business of why we're here, where we're going, what life is all about, and how to live life, no one has the answer. And then it seems that he turns maybe from his left hand, and in what we call chapter 42 and verse 1, he says, Here is my servant. And it's very interesting that the way it was actually written was this. Verse 29, chapter 41. Behold, they are all false. Look, examine. They haven't got the answers. Then it's the same word, but not well translated in the English. Behold, here is my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. The end of verse 2. Or verse 3, the islands will put their trust in him, his law, where they will trust, verse 4. And then he goes on and he speaks about the breaking of bondage, civil liberties, good news for the poor, and the answers to life. And the question we ask is this, who then was this servant who was suddenly introduced on the stage of history? The fact is we don't really know what we do know is that when God gave prophecies to his servants, there usually was an immediate outcome. The prophecy is not primarily speaking about the future. It's forth-telling as well as foretelling. The forth-telling, the first bit, is telling what God is saying for the hour. And Bible scholars have scratched their corporate heads and said, who then was the servant that brought the answer to the nation? that brought revival, that brought help. And various answers are given. It may have been this prophet himself, Isaiah. It may have been the king himself, spiritually renewed. There's a good case for saying it was actually a remnant of the nation, a group of people who got their lives in order, who walked in God's ways and were able to show people as light as we've been singing. We don't know, but we know there was some immediate response. What we do know is this, that those words written for us hundreds of years ago actually had a wider fulfillment. And Bible scholars agree, and many of us here tonight know, that these words actually, while they had an immediate fulfillment in the 8th century BC, had a wider fulfillment in Jesus. In fact, if you take out the word servant in these verses and put in the word Jesus, it makes sense. Here is Jesus whom I uphold. My chosen one in whom I delight, I will put my spirit on him. He will bring justice to the nations. And there's a very real sense in which these words are fulfilled in Jesus. Some years ago now, I think your pastor Peter may have been there in London, when a very useful commentary, a book explaining the prophecy of Isaiah, was launched in London. Many of the church fathers were there, and the Reverend Dr. Alec Mateer presented his book. And uh, 
uh, to suitable applause, Alec rose and he said, ladies and gentlemen, I'm delighted to present this. It's my life work. He said, um, it seems to me that this book falls into three bits. The first bit is about Jesus. And the second bit is about Jesus. And the third bit is about Jesus. And he sat down. And I thought, that's brilliant. That's right. And if I were to stop now, and you were to go and have your coffee, actually, the leaders of the church would need to give me 10 out of 10 for theological accuracy. Because it really is about Jesus. But it doesn't end there. Because there is a third level in which those words apply, would you believe, today and to us, if we are committed Christian people. An immediate application in the 8th century, a much wider application in Jesus, the results of which the world is yet to see when he comes back. But there is a present application for us now. And I want to dare to suggest that if you love Jesus Christ, those words apply to you tonight. There's almost a sense in which God is saying, act out the prophecy again in the city of Edinburgh, in the United Kingdom, in the Middle East, in the Far East. It's as if God is saying to a watching world, here, you're looking for answers. Here, here is my servant. Here is my servant. Here are my servants. Those who are the followers of Jesus Christ. Is it possible that you and I, if we love Jesus Christ, actually fit here? Let me try to explain why I believe that with all my heart. I'm sorry I don't have a PowerPoint outlined for you this evening, but the four pegs on which I want to hang my thoughts are dead simple. I want to suggest that if you are a Christian, you, like Jesus, like Isaiah, are God's servant. And the first peg is this, the servant's affirmation. You remember that word, I hope. The servant's affirmation. Let's look at it. Here is my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom I delight. Look at that word, chosen. And then the next phrase, in whom I delight, cherished chosen. Now if I were to ask regular worshippers here, do you believe in the doctrine of the sovereignty of God? I hope you'd all yell back, yes, because you're well taught. If I said to you, if that is true, then do you believe that if you are a Christian tonight, it is because God chose you long before the world began? I would hope with equal confidence you would yell back, yes, because that is the Bible's teaching. I was privileged to be preaching in uh, Australia last summer, our summer there, winter, with my wife Margaret. And uh, we were in the wonderful city of Sydney. There's an Anglican vicar there, and uh, he and his wife had no children, and so they adopted a little boy. And one day the child came home from school, and very excitedly said to his daddy, 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 where do I come from? And his father thought, Oh dear, the moment of truth has arrived. And so he sat the child down and with some detail he explained to him the facts of life. The boy listened wide-eyed. And at the end he said, oh, Daddy, that's most interesting. He said, the reason I asked is, there's a new fellow in our class and he comes from Melbourne and I wondered where I came from. <laughs> that night as they had their family prayers, the little boy snuggled up to his daddy. He said, Daddy, when you were telling me all that stuff earlier, 
You told me that you're not my natural daddy. Yes, his father said, that's right. And mummy's not my natural mummy. No, that's right, son. Then he said, you, you chose me. Yes, he said, I suppose that's right. Well, he said, daddy, that makes me very, very special. Do you feel special tonight? If you're a Christian, do you feel special? I wonder why God, before this world began, chose you that you would be the person you are here tonight in the 21st century. Why did he choose me to be his servant? I can think of a dozen reasons and my wife could think of a dozen reasons more why God shouldn't have chosen me. But he did. And I don't know who you are. You may come this evening and you don't feel special and you don't feel significant in any sense. But if you're a Christian and Christ lives in your life, then you are God's servant whom he chose. Why did he do that? Was it just that one day he'll get you safely to heaven? Was it one day that he would simply take you to be with himself in glory? Well, that's true, but I think more than that. We have been stunned this weekend as we've seen the effects again as what appears to have been the work of Al-Qaeda. It was some years ago that Osama bin Laden declared that he had placed cells across the world. This brilliant idea, sadistic but brilliant idea, of placing cell groups across the world. What an idea. He wasn't the first to think of it. God thought of that thousands of years ago. Not to do damage, but to do good. You see, when Jesus died and rose again and went back to heaven, he didn't say, well, that's it. He actually began to call people into faith so that they might be witnesses where they are. I said this morning and repeat it this evening, what a privilege you have of coming to this church, hearing God's word preached, lively praise, Christian friendship to support you. But you know, with all respect, my dear esteemed friend Peter Granger is not the answer to Edinburgh. He's part of it. But some of you are. Some of you will reach people that the minister of this church or any other church will never reach, but you'll reach them. Some of you will go to parts of the world through your professions and you will touch people's lives that no one else will touch. God called you for that purpose. Chosen. But not only chosen, cherished, in whom I delight. Could that be true of us? It certainly was true of Jesus. And if you know the New Testament well, you'll know that on a number of occasions, the heavens seemed to break open and God spoke from heaven and said, look at him, that's my son, our Lord Jesus Christ. In him I am well pleased. Could God be delighted in me? Some of you, I'm sure, are studying psychology at college or university here and you know the importance of people being valued and affirmed. That's a great word in the 21st century, affirmed. Do you feel affirmed this evening? Some of my generation look for affirmation on the car registration, a title on an office door, the size of a house, clothes and style. And some of you look for affirmation through friendships, through your peer group. We all look for it. We all need it. Maybe some of us this evening feel we're not really affirmed. We're not important. It can happen to anyone. Some of us have children who have grown up and they haven't always wanted to go to church. 
Some of us have been there. Mother shouts up on Sunday morning to her son, Are you up? Nope. Are you going to church? Nope. Why not? Two reasons. What are the reasons? They don't love me. I don't love them. The mother walked up the stairs and respectfully opened her son's door. She said, I'll give you two reasons why you're getting out of that bed and you're going to church. Number one, you've heard the story, some of you, you're 50 years old. Number two, you're the minister of the church. It can happen so easily. I wonder tonight if you have come and you genuinely feel nobody really cares. God looks down and says, hey, listen, listen, I love you. I value you. I affirm you. I speak into your life that you are precious, that you are significant. There's a task for you to do. Chosen. Cherished. If you're a Christian tonight, I want you to go out of here feeling significant. That you are God's servant. You have a message for this nation and for this world. Ah, but you say, I'm just me. I couldn't preach like Peter Granger and I, I certainly couldn't write songs like Graham Kendrick and I don't know what I can do. Look at the next bit. In whom I delight, verse 1, still I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. Take those words, five words. I will put six, on my, seven, on my spirit on him. Put my spirit. That's what I want to focus on, these three. Uh, some of us know that those words actually refer to the anointing that God gave to the king who would be anointed to lead the nation. The high priest who would lead the work of the church, as we would call it today in the Old Testament. Or the prophet who would powerfully speak God's word, where he took ordinary people and infused them with divine energy to do special tasks. I will put my spirit on him. I will anoint him. Do you know, it's just the same today for us. If you turn to the book of the Acts, you find men who were, some of them, fishermen with no formal education. Some who were shy and retiring. And yet they went as lions to the task of mission. And people actually looked on and said, and you read about it in the book of the Acts, these guys are actually turning the world upside down. Why? How? It was the power of the Holy Spirit. And if you are prepared to say this evening, yes, this is right, I am God's servant. It's amazing, he's chosen me. And he affirms me. I'm loved by God. I'm game to do what God will ask me to do. You'll find that you can only do it, but you will do it in the power of the Holy Spirit. That is God's enabling for the task. We had a girl who came, uh, I see a girl, a, a, a doctor, from Northern Ireland. She wanted to work among the refugee Palestinian people in the south of Lebanon, a dangerous place to be. So she pitched up to the registration office in Beirut and uh, they said to her, you want to be a doctor? She said, I am a doctor. And uh, sometimes these societies can, I said this morning, I wasn't here to insult anyone. I value the Arab people. They're great people. But sometimes the male dominance shows through and this male doctor looked at her and said, um, have you got A-levels? And she said, I controlled myself. She said, I have four A-levels and I have a, a degree in medicine from Edinburgh University, no less. 
Well, he said, you'll have to sit all your exams again. And she walked out in rage and walked along the famous corniche and suddenly she thought, that's wrong. If the guy wants me to do my exams again, I'll do them. But I need a miracle. And then suddenly she thought, I know someone who does miracles. She went back to the office. She said, I apologize for my reaction. I'll sit the exams. When? He said, in two weeks' time. He obviously had the gift of encouragement. Because he then said, and by the way, 70% of the people who come from the West to sit our exams fail them. But you know, Esther sat them. And as she was sitting there, things just flooded back to her mind. She passed the exams with flying colours, probably because she was a good Irish lass. No doubt because she studied at Edinburgh Medical School. But she said later, it was as if God's Spirit just prompted things. Things she'd long forgotten in medical school. They'd come flashing back. And she wrote it down and was able to minister there. You know, you and I will never be able to stand before God and say one day, oh, I'm sorry, Lord, I really... I appreciate the thought you chose me. Dear me, you affirm me, but, well, I'm sorry, I just, I didn't have the ability. Because God gives to us His Holy Spirit. It, it's about not only the doing of it, but I tell you, and I need to warn you this evening, it's about being obedient as well. Forgive me if I share a moment of personal testimony. I do it for two reasons. One, people have asked about my background. And secondly, because I think it illustrates the importance of these verses. I, like Peter here, had been a pastor for a number of years in England. I was actually on the board of our organization, our organization Middle East Christian Outreach. And I was traveling into Waterloo Station one Wednesday evening. And as the train went round the final bend, I was about to interview people for the task I'm doing. It was as if I had a voice. There was no audible voice, but a voice had spoken. It was there in my head would you not do this task? And I thought, oh no, that wasn't God, was it? Not me. And I said, all right, Lord, if this is you speaking, then tonight let someone else at the council, the board meeting, say the same words. No one said a word. I went home on the late night train. I took up the first little mobile phone I had and I phoned my wife. I said, I had this most amazing experience, but I must have imagined it. I'm off the hook. The next morning, our general secretary rang the house, he said, John, John, he said, I, I, I want to say something, he said, I actually noted it down, I wanted to say last night and I forgot, would you not do this task? Oh, I said, Peter, don't do this to me. Well, in the months that followed, I resisted, and eventually a fellow came, a barrister by training, minister of one of the largest Baptist churches in the southern, uh, in the northeast uh, of England, and uh, he came uh, I always remember him coming with a lovely silk tie and handkerchief, tall, handsome, slim, all the things I'm not, on spring harvest board. And he accepted. And I thought, I'm off the hook, really. The very next night I was preaching in our church from Acts chapter 1. You know that verse that says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And I suddenly stopped. I said, people, I'm sorry, I can't do this. I can't do this with integrity. I'm asking you to do something that I'm not prepared to do. Please forgive me. And I just collapsed in the pulpit. I found a prayer dragged from my throat. God, I give myself to you for Middle East Christian outreach. Oh, what a stupid prayer. 
We've got the man, the perfect man. A couple of days later, our chairman rang me. He said, John, I've got some bad news for you. I said, stop, Anthony. Before you go any further, what you're going to tell me is not news. You're going to tell me that so-and-so has had to drop out. He said, yes, that's right. How do you know? I said, because I've got to do it. I tell you that story not in any sense to my credit. You'll realize it's to my discredit. But I realize as I look back over these six years where we've been traveling in many countries in the Western world and in the Middle East, first of all, it's better to be obedient. And secondly, I'd never believed that God would give us the abilities, the sheer energy to keep going in a different church Sunday by Sunday in different countries in the Western world traveling in difficult areas in the Middle East under armed guard to bring the word of God. I look at this verse and I say, yes, it's right. He will put his spirit on you and give you power. Now, of course, I want to be theologically accurate. If you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit in you, living in you. You can't be a Christian without the Holy Spirit. But, of course, what the writer is meaning here, Isaiah, is God's power released from the spirit in you. The servant's affirmation. The servant's anointing. But let's pursue this further. Verse 2, he will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. That was true of Jesus, was it not? He wasn't bombastic. He wasn't arrogant. The next verse was certainly true of Jesus. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. Older Christians love that verse. Verse 3, a bruised reed he will not break. If you travel along the river Nile in Egypt, there are thousands of reeds. You stand on one, who cares, it doesn't matter. But of course, you see, Jesus, the supreme servant, he says, no, everyone matters. And it's a beautiful picture of how he fans into flame life that seems to have pretty well gone. A smoldering wick he won't snuff out. And of course you know that in the ancient world they didn't have electricity or gas. Light came from little wicks that floated in bowls of oil. And if you came home from work and the wick was smoldering, it was easier to just blow it out, go around to Woolworths and get another one. But not so Jesus. He fans into flame those even tiny bits of life that seem almost to have gone. Great picture of the Christian worker. We're to be patient with people. We're to work with them. But you know, this is real thespian stuff. It's God's word, but it comes to us in poetic and dramatic form. What many have missed is the fact that in the next verse, there is actually a play on words here. He will not falter or be discouraged. Would you believe that the word falter is the same word as the word smolder? And would you believe that the word discouraged is the same word as the word bruised? In other words, he's saying, my servants, if they're going to win the world and reach the whole world with the good news of the gospel, while they are gentle, while they are patient, they themselves don't get discouraged. They don't get bruised. Their attitude is such that they keep pressing on consistently. Folks, I believe that sometimes our message, or rather the impact of our message, is lost on our contemporaries because our attitude is wrong. We fail 
at the point of communicating our personalities. I have a friend who was privileged to be brought up in a wealthy home in Egypt. His father allowed him to study pharmacy at university in a suit, set him up in his own pharmaceutical business. He enjoyed success. And as a Christian, he decided to take a great pile of pharmaceuticals to a less favored country in the Middle East. He arrived at the airport, never discovered what went wrong, whether someone who didn't like him or his family actually spread a false rumor, or whether the customs men failed to understand, but suddenly he was arrested. He was thrown in prison. He was accused of being a drug runner. He was, in fact, bringing pharmaceuticals, but to help a very poor country in the Middle East. In prison, he had only his underwear, no blankets, very limited food. The days passed. No one came. And then one day, the door of the jail opened, and a wide-eyed jailer came and said, Oh, sir, we are so sorry. We have misjudged you. You came to help our people. But instead, we have treated you so badly. Now, this man, a Christian pastor, has come to greet you. He will spend a few moments with you, and later today you will return to your own country with our government's apologies. We are so sorry. And then my friend said a pastor came, and he brought with him two cooked chickens. And he said, to this day, I don't know why he brought two cooked chickens. But my friend, our Christian brother there, in his underwear, now with some more clothes on, he said to the jailer, come and eat this food with me. And those guards outside, come and let us share this meal together. And with their bare hands, they ate the food. And my friend shared with them why he had come to the country and why he had brought the pharmaceuticals and he shared the love of Jesus. They washed their hands. Someone took the carcasses away. And then my friend said, I'll sit here in the prison cell until I leave this evening. And Jaila looked at him and said, no, don't go back into that cell. Why not? He said, I'm leaving this evening. That's what you said. So he said, I, I can't let you go back there. He said, the fact is that you were never to leave the country this evening. The fact is you have become an embarrassment to us. You came to help us. Instead, we have misjudged you. He said, in half an hour, a group of men will come from other part of the prison. They are murderers. They are rapists. And the plan was that they would literally tear you limb from limb and you would just disappear. But he said, sir, you have, you've been so gracious. You've said, come, share this meal. Come and eat this food with me. And you've told us why you came. I can see that you're a good man. You will come under my protection. And somehow we'll arrange that you genuinely will leave the country tonight. As that Egyptian Christian shared the story, I, just the thought of it, felt so guilty. I wonder what I'd have done. I think as soon as that cell door opened, I would have leapt up the fellow and say, here, I want to see my ambassador. How dare you treat me like this? I come to this country to help you. Look what you've done. How you've ill-treated me. But he didn't do that. You see, he didn't get bruised. He, he didn't get discouraged. He didn't falter in his Christian life. And there, cold and tired and hungry, he still said, come and share this meal. 
And let me tell you about Jesus. Dear people, God needs servants who will not only come with a clear message, but who will come with a spirit of humble love. Men and women who will not get snuffed out, who will not easily get bruised, but press on consistently. We're almost in injury time. We need to move fast. The servant's affirmation, the servant's anointing, the servant's attitude, but last of all, the servant's activity. What's the point of all this? Well, we've read it again and again. Verse 1, he will bring forth justice to the nations. Again in verse 2, in faithfulness he will bring forth justice. Verse 4, in his islands uh, the, the Lord, they will put their trust in his law. And so on, you'll be a light to the Gentiles, etc. What is this about? Well, surely it is fulfilled in Jesus. That's right. Justice. How can this possibly about us, ordinary mortals like you and like me? Well, I confess I puzzled over this as I studied this some time ago. And then I got the clue to explain it. In the ancient world, they said, where there is truth, there is justice. Where there is truth in a community, there is justice. Where there is truth in a family between husband and wife, there is justice. Where there is truth between children and parents, there is justice. Do you remember a man who walked the streets of Jerusalem and said, I am the truth? What is justice? Justice, first of all, is putting men right with God. That's where it begins. And when you put people right with God, you then put them right with themselves. And when you put them right with themselves, then you put them right with their neighbors. Let me finish with one last story. A friend of mine who is now a part of our organization, Farouk Sankari, was born in the little village in the north of uh, Lebanon called Tripoli. He came down in the 1980s to make his fortune in Beirut and was doing very well in his business life until one night the Israelis came in 1982 and bombed the city and bombed his business uh, out of existence. Farouk went to the bank, took his money and fled to Athens in Greece. And there he spent all his money in wild living. When he had spent all his money on wine, women and song, he realized he had nothing left. An angry man, he said, I know what I'll do. I'll take my life. And as a Muslim, I will go to Allah. And I will get Allah by the shirt. I didn't know God wore a shirt. But he said, I will get Allah by the shirt and I will say, why have you allowed all this trouble in the world? Why have you allowed this trouble in my life? And so he went to the Acropolis to throw himself off and take his own life. Now, I've never been there, but they tell me the Acropolis slopes gently, and as he looked over, he thought, oh dear, if I jump, I'll just break a leg. What do I do? He had a voice behind him, Farouk, do not do it. He turned, but there was no one there. Dejected, he went down from the Acropolis and came past a shrine, uh, or rather a crucifix, and there in a Greek Orthodox shrine, he saw the image of Jesus on the cross. 
was a Muslim, he addressed Jesus, the prophet Isa. He said, Isa, Isa the prophet, some people say you're alive. If you are alive, please come and help me. Nothing happened. He went to the bar where he began his usual drinking with the last of his money. The waiter came with his first drink. He looked at him. Farouk, he said, you, you're different. Different, thought Farouk. Why, why, why? He didn't take that drink. Instead, he wandered the streets of Athens. Some young people from YWAM found him. They gave him a Bible. He went home to his flat and he began to read. And as he read and read, he found not Jesus or Isa the prophet, but rather Jesus the Savior, alive and well. And without any human agency, he gave his life to Jesus Christ. And then he did an interesting thing. He picked up the telephone and he phoned the ambassador of Colonel Gaddafi, the Libyan embassy. He said, sir, I, I must speak with the ambassador. He said, why? He said, I have a special message for him. Farouk didn't get to the ambassador, but he got to his people. What's your message? Gentlemen, he said, I found the answer. I found the answer to the Palestinian struggle. I found the answer to the Arab-Israeli struggle. I found the answer to the problems of life. These fellows are little buttons under the desks and Farouk was lovingly propelled onto the street. Onto the next embassy until within 24 hours he had to change his name and was blacklisted. He told me that story. I thought, you know, he's right. Have we not found the answer? The answer that puts men right with God. That puts people right with themselves. That puts people right with their neighbor. It's Jesus. That's justice. Our world tonight is looking for answers. Let's go out from here and give them Jesus. Let's pray.